The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Today we're continuing our series, You're Invited. And throughout the series, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the mission that God has given to us to go and make disciples of all nations, to extend the love and care of the crucified and risen Jesus to all people. And we've been wrestling with what does that look like in our midst? How do we, how do we accomplish that mission? And over the past few weeks, Pastor Joe has, has begun walking us through a, a, number, a series of different words, this idea of belonging and believing and becoming. If you haven't been with us the past few weeks, I encourage you, you can go online and catch up on these sermons because these have given for us a framework as we think about how are we going to accomplish that in our midst. And so what you've seen in in these different words is they are all very closely connected to one another. And they're not words that we cross off a list and move on from, but each one builds upon another. As we grow in our belonging, as we grow in our relationship with one another, it also leads to a greater, a greater awareness, a greater love, a greater, a greater faith in what the scriptures teach us. And as we grow in our knowledge and love of the scriptures, it then, it then helps form us as Christ followers as we become more and more like Jesus. And then that, that cycle continues. As we become more and more like Jesus, we continue to grow in our relationships within our own communities, which then do, send us deeper into the scriptures, which then help us become more and more like Jesus. And so what I want to do today is I want to connect that, that becoming to belonging. Because as you and I become more and more like Jesus, what we'll, what we'll find is in the same way that Jesus loves us and, and has made a relationship where we can belong to him regardless of what we've done, that we, as we become more and more like Jesus, we do that same thing for other people. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the Apostle Paul writes, God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. Which means that if you are here today as a Christian, God, God planned for you to be here as a Christian. And he chose you. And he planned for you to become more and more like Jesus as you follow Jesus. Which means when you look at the way that Jesus loved. When you, when you look at the way Jesus treated the outsiders. When you look at the way that Jesus responds to sin. It means as you and I follow Jesus, we will become more like Jesus. And we will love others the same way that he loved us. That we will respond to people the way that Jesus responded to people. If you could turn in your Bibles to the book of John chapter 4. I want to use this particular text to help us think about what it looks like for us as we love the people around us and how Christ loved us. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1,651. And so we're going to dive into this text this morning to look at Jesus' conversation ...with a Samaritan woman, and what we'll see in her is exactly how Jesus treats the outsider. I'll begin in verse 1, and we'll we'll pause in a number of different places... ...and talk about the significance of of a number of these different points in this passage. Beginning in verse 1, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. That's John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples... When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now I'll pause there for a moment. 
See, there's something interesting about this passage when we look at what Jesus does when he's traveling. The text tells us he had to go through Samaria. Now, it's an odd thing that John says about this, this event because the reality is Jesus doesn't have to go to Samaria. It says, it says he had to go through Samaria, but there, there are actually other ways for Jesus to get where he's going than going through Samaria. In fact, it is very common in Jesus' day that a Jew, when they were traveling, if, if the quickest route was through Samaria, they would actually tend to go around Samaria because of some of the, because some of the, the, the cultural divisions and some of the ways that they, that the, the reality that they believed that the Samaritans were unclean. See, Samaritans in that day were, they were considered half-breeds. They didn't believe the right things. They didn't do the right things. They didn't practice the right things. And so a good Jew would avoid Samaritans. And so when the text tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it's a little bit surprising because Jesus, if he would have went around Samaria, that would have been actually the normal thing to do. Now, it would have taken a little bit longer, but it would have been common practice, and no one would have had any questions about Jesus doing it that way. So you'd be kind of like, suppose you were on a business trip in Europe for about a month. And at the tail end of that business trip, your boss called you and said, I need you now to go to another business meeting, this time in Florida. And you told your boss that, that okay, I, I will go to Florida, but I have to go home to Michigan first. Now, in your boss's mind, it's more cost efficient for you to go directly to Florida. It will save time and money. It will be more valuable. But in your mind, when you say you have to go to Michigan, you don't mean that, that the only route is going to Michigan. What you mean is that you need to see somebody in Michigan. That you have a family. That you need to see your kids. You need to see your spouse. And so you don't really have to go to Michigan. But for you, there's somebody you need to see. That's what's going on when John says he had to go through Samaria. There were other routes, but Jesus had a mission. There was somebody that Jesus needed to see when he was traveling. And so Jesus arrives at this place called Sychar. Verse 6 tells us Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now here we continue, continue to see what, what, what we saw earlier on, that, that cultural division between Jews and Samaritans. But there are also a number of other interesting things. One of the things that I find interesting about this text is throughout the Gospel of John, you'll find a lot of instances where people are approaching Jesus. Where people are looking for Jesus, they're looking for healing, they want to hear his teaching. But this is an example of not somebody going to Jesus, but Jesus going to somebody. This woman did, was not interested in seeing anybody at that well. See, the text tells us that it was about the sixth hour. What we know is that it's about noon. And in that culture, going to the well at noon was not the time that people went to, the, went to the well. In fact, women would typically travel in groups in the morning or evening when it, when it was not nearly as hot. And so what we understand here is that this woman is going in the hottest part of the day when nobody else is going. In fact, historians even tell us that, it, that this well that she goes to would have required her to pass by several other wells on the way. Which leads us to, to believe that there must be something 
or someone that this woman is trying to avoid when she's at the well that day. See, this is a woman with a reputation. This is a woman that when, when, the, when her community was around, that they snickered, that they whispered and talked about her because, because they knew all about her sin. They knew all about the kind of woman she was. And so for her, going at noon meant avoiding the shame and scorn of her community. Bearing the scorn of the heat was easier for her than bearing the scorn of her own neighbors. And so she goes to this well at noon, anticipating that she would not see anybody, especially a Jewish man. And so Jesus there then begins a conversation with her. He, and what's interesting about this is Jesus breaks through barriers that would have caused great concern in Jesus' day. Jesus breaks a barrier as he begins a conversation with this woman. There, there's a barrier because Jesus is a man and he's a woman. The, the disciples had gone into town. And so this was, this was not kind of fit, fitting with the social customs for, for a Jewish man to approach a woman. He also breaks the cultural and ethnic barriers when he asks her for a drink. So not only is there this divide with the Jews and Samaritans when it comes to a conversation, but it even goes further if a Jew were to ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. One rabbi spoke ab about this kind of concern when he says, He that eats the bread of Samaritans is like one that eats the flesh of swine. Now, for bacon-loving bacon Americans, that can be a little bit hard for us to understand what, what's going on with that tension. But, but a good Jew has, has some, some cleanliness laws about what they can and cannot eat. Pork, pig, bacon, that's, that's one of them. And so what they said, what, what this rabbi taught, was that the, that the Jew who takes a drink of water from a Samaritan is just as sinful... As, as not following the kosher laws. Right, that, that is how unheard of what Jesus does in that day. Why would Jesus be willing to cross these kind of barriers that would risk his reputation and standing amongst his own people? Why would Jesus do that? The conversation continues and it just gets better as we go. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never Thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus has this conversation with her now about water, and we know that this is really about more than water. Where it's clear to us as we read this that Jesus is talking about something far greater than the water that could be taken out of the well. Now it's not clear if she totally understands what Jesus is talking about yet. We, 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 we know that, that there, there seems to be a little bit of confusion as she's asking Jesus some of these questions. But, but there is one thing that is very appealing to her in this moment. 
She knows that what Jesus is offering to her means that she would not have to keep coming to the well at noon. That what Jesus is offering to her means that she would not continue, have to continue bearing the scorn of the shame that she experiences from her community. She she hears Jesus and says, Jesus, are you telling me there's a kind of water that means I won't have to do what I've been doing, avoiding people, avoiding the the reputation that my sin has caused? See, Jesus offers her living water. See, what Jesus does is he promises to give what no one else can give. Jesus is already shocked Or she's already shocked by Jesus approaching her. And now he offers to give her something better than what other people give. A kind of water that would satisfy her deepest needs. A water that would give what nothing else can give. As we continue to read, we get a glimpse even further of her own sin. Of her own barriers that she has created. And what's interesting about this as we read, we also then realize that Jesus knew about all of these all along. That none of these were a surprise to Jesus. Verse 16, Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. See, not only is this woman a Samaritan woman, but she has committed adultery. Her sin is scandalous. Right, there's a reason she's there at noon, because, because she's gotten around her community and everybody knows about it. And so she's there, trying to avoid the shame, and now Jesus brings out into the light the very thing that she was avoiding in the first place. That she's had five husbands, she's on number six, who's not even her husband at this time. And Jesus responds to her, and his offer still stands. And his offer still stands because he knew, he made the offer knowing what he just revealed. Jesus' offer of living water was not dependent on her good behavior. It was not dependent on whether or not she deserved it or whether his, of Jesus' own community thought it was a good idea to give it to this woman. See, Jesus gives this gift to someone no one would expect. Jesus doesn't give his grace and mercy to the deserving. He gives it to the people who don't deserve it. Jesus doesn't make your behavior the requirement to belong. He doesn't make your your good works a, a requirement for whether or not he loves you. His love, his sacrifice, his death and resurrection is the only requirement. And so finally, this woman in her, in her conversation with Jesus begins to realize that there's something different. Eventually, as the woman begins to ask and talk about the coming Messiah, Jesus reveals to her, I who speak to you am he. And what's amazing to me is then the response of the woman In verse 28, it says she left her water jar and went back to the town. And in verse 29, it says, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now, isn't it interesting where we have ended up compared to where we began? 
Right? She, she, we began with a woman there at noon avoiding her community because of the shame that she's experienced because of her own sin. And now she's going back to that very community where she has experienced the shame and scorn because of her own sin and the sin that she didn't want anybody to talk about. She's now going and pointing to Jesus because Jesus knew all about the sin that she was hiding from everybody. But there's something about what Jesus offered to her that changed things. Because Jesus offered something that would satisfy her in a way nothing else could. That Jesus was relentless in his grace and mercy toward her in her sin. Some of you are here this morning and you're thirsty. That you are looking for something, that maybe you've been rejected by, by friends, family members, your community, that you are hurting and that, that you have nowhere to turn. Some of you have sinned in ways that you're ashamed of. Sins that you hope never find you out. And maybe you're here this morning and you're just looking for something. And maybe the word that you need to hear this morning is that Jesus hands you a glass of water and says drink. Because this will satisfy you in ways that nothing else can. That Jesus speaks to you in the midst of your deepest guilt and shame that your sins are forgiven. In the, in the book of Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul describes the living water by saying it this way. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. By the death and resurrection of Jesus, he gives to us what no one else can give to us. And he gives it to us who, who no one would expect to get it. Because we don't deserve it. But by the blood of Jesus, our deepest longings, the cravings to be known, to be loved, to be worthy, to be accepted, are satisfied by Jesus alone. And so you and I, as we look to the work of Christ, can we not see all the barriers that Jesus has crossed to give himself to us? The barriers of our own shame. The barriers of our own sin. Of our own rebellion. And as you and I become more and more like Jesus, what would it look like for us to love people the way that Jesus loves us? What barriers does Jesus want you to cross in order to invite someone to belong? Think about your community, your neighbors, your co-workers. What barriers is Jesus inviting you to cross in order to love them like Jesus has loved you? Maybe for you, one of the, one of the barriers that, that, that some of your friends have is they don't know Christians. See, I don't know if you know this about our world, but, but people of differing ideologies tend to gather with other people of the same ideologies. And so, so these, dif the, these differing opinions are not growing close to, closer together in our nation. They're actually growing further and further apart. Which means that, it, that as a Christian, you will tend to hang out with other Christians who think and act like you do. And those who are outside the church will hang out and spend time their time primarily with those who think the way that they do, which creates a problem because those who are outside of the church then don't know people who actually go to church. Those who, who don't follow Jesus don't actually know anybody who follows Jesus. 
And so perhaps one of the most simple barriers that you can cross with somebody you work with, with one of your neighbors, could actually be to befriend somebody who doesn't know very many Christians. Because perhaps their only opinion of Christians is what they hear but have never experienced. Perhaps the barrier that you can cross is inviting them out for a drink to get to know them. And giving them an opportunity to be surprised by what it looks like to know somebody who follows Jesus. By giving them an opportunity to just share their heart. To share their story. Maybe a barrier for you is, is, is a cultural barrier. That as you look to your neighbors, maybe there's a, there's a generational culture. Maybe there is an ethnic culture that has put up some walls between you and your neighbor. And has made it difficult to relate to them. And so maybe for you, that's a barrier to cross, to go out of your way for you to become uncomfortable so that they might be comfortable. And to begin conversations, to get to learn, to know why they think the way they do, to, to learn what, what shapes them, what molded them, to cross barriers in order to love them the way that Jesus loved you. Maybe it's a barrier of sin. Maybe there's somebody in your family, somebody in your, in your neighborhood that you, that you know their sin issues. But that their sin issues haven't been hidden. And you know the depth and the brokenness that their behavior has caused. Maybe the behavior for you, maybe, maybe the barrier for you to cross is knowing their sin and how their sin makes you uncomfortable to reach out. To love them where they are. Not to dismiss their sin, but to love them knowing that sin. See, the person most in need of compassion, kindness, humility, and patience is often the person we could least imagine sitting next to us in church. The person who most needs that love and grace and mercy that you and I are able to show is often the person we could not dare imagine being here. But isn't that what Jesus does? The person that no one would expect? The person that even the religious in Jesus' days would not want Jesus to be talking to? Is that not the person who Jesus reaches out to? Says you and I become more and more like Jesus, what we will do is we will reach and we will cross barriers to the people around us to love like Jesus loved. To cross social, cultural, behavioral barriers in order to love how we have been loved. Now when we talk about belonging, I think it's also important to note that belonging is not about giving permission to sin. Well, you'll notice this when you look at the, at, at the way Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman. He's not giving permission for sinful behavior. See, when we talk about becoming a place that, that, that where people can belong, it's not about changing right and wrong. It's not about dismissing truth. It's not about dismissing what the scriptures teach. In fact, that's not what happens when Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman. Right? He doesn't pretend she's not a sinner. He doesn't pretend she didn't commit adultery. He's not pretending that adultery is not a big deal. No, Jesus makes very clear and is very honest about the reality of sin. See, belonging, though, is not about minimizing sin. It's just about treating sin the way Jesus treats it. 
about treating sinners the way Jesus treats sinners. See, belonging is not about giving permission to sin, which is a weird thing if you think about it. Because I don't know about you, but I've never needed permission to sin. I've been quite good at figuring that out on my own. See, but what belonging is, belonging is about becoming a place where it's safe to be honest about sin. It's about becoming a place where we can let our guard down and let people see where we struggle. Where we can let people see that we don't got it all together. This is what Jesus does with the Samaritan woman. He doesn't dismiss the sin. He gives her a place where she can be honest. And when she goes back to her community, she is exactly that. She's honest about her sin. She says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come and see the man who, who pointed out, yet also loved me in that place. See, as a church, may we become a place where it is safe to be honest about our sin. Because when we do that as a church, it also allows us to marvel in the depth and width of God's grace towards sinners. As you and I become more and more like Jesus, we also will become a church that is honest about the problem of sin in order to be honest about the depth of God's love for sinful people. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes the family of God with these words saying, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. In other words, you are no longer outsiders to the kingdom of God. You're no longer outsiders to the family of God, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. He's talking about being a part of the family, which is built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. It's built on the foundations of the scriptures with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, that all of the scriptures point to the work and person of Jesus Christ. And so he says to us that you were on the outside, you've been made a part of this family. And so for you and I who are members of this family, as we become more and more like Jesus, as we follow Jesus, has God not also then called us to invite those outside the family into the family? That he's called us to invite people into the family of God as in all of the Christian church. But also this particular, this local expression of God's family. For the past couple of weeks and, and for the next couple of weeks in my own house, we have been in birthday preparation mode. Some of you have been, are familiar with this kind of party preparation experience. Um, if you're an adult, you know the stress that it can cause for planning a family. If you're, if you're a kid, you can probably look to your parents and you know the kind of people your parents become when it's birthday planning time. Um, so you see, there, there are a number of things when I think about the birthday preparation time in our house that I've experienced that I think also parallel what it looks like for us to be God's church as we invite others into the family. The first thing that, that I think is interesting is as I had planned for my kids' birthday parties, we, we have two birthdays in February, and so it's a three-year-old, five-year-old birthday party coming up. And as we do so, would it not be foolish for me to circle a date on the calendar and then look out the window for people to just show up? Like, would it not be foolish for me to pick the date but never tell anyone? But how often do we do exactly that when it comes to this family? That we want people to come, but we've never extended an invitation. See, as the family of God, if we want people to be a part of the family, we need to extend an invitation. 
Now, that invitation might not always be an invitation to a worship service, although I think a worship service can be a great opportunity to invite people who don't know Jesus. It might be an invitation just for a relationship with you, because quite possibly a relationship with you might be the first step to a relationship with other Christians. Or it might be an invitation to a, a small group gathering where you are hanging out with other people that you do life with. Other people that love your kids, that love your family, and so you're inviting other people to experience your, that your church family. Or maybe it's inviting other people to be a part of a trip, something like a, a marriage retreat or, or a student ministry trip or event. But we should not, as God's people, expect people to just wander in. No, can God work with that? Yeah, absolutely. But that's not what God has called us to. Now, there's not only the invitations, though, in it when it comes to the birthday party in our house. Because we, we, the invites go out, but then you also have to be ready for people to show up. Which I think is the worst part, because it, then you actually have to, you have to make sure that the food's going to be ready. You have to make sure you have enough drinks, and then you have to make sure the house is clean. And in my case, you have to make sure you put away the toys. And then after you put away the toys, you have to start all over again. Right? You have to be prepared for guests to actually show up. Which is stressful, but it is necessary when it comes to having a good party. Because if you're not prepared for the guests to show up, they're not going to have anything to eat. They're not going to have anything to drink. And the kids might be happy if they're getting presents, but nobody else is going to be happy if you're not prepared for them to be there. As a church, what does it look like for us to be prepared for guests? What does it look like for you to be prepared for people who don't know Jesus to be getting to know you? What does it look like for you to be going out of your way on a Sunday morning to introduce yourself to somebody who you haven't met before? Or reintroducing yourself to somebody who you didn't know you met before? What, what does it look like for, for us to become a place that is welcoming, that wants people to show up who don't go here? What does it look like for us as pastors, as worship leaders... To be communicating in such a way that expects that not everybody knows what's going on. So I, I think of it in a similar way. If you've ever been a significant other at a family party, you understand the experience that a guest has when they come into this place. Right? When, you, when you're a significant other, when you go to your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiancé, uh, when, when, when you meet their family for the first time and you're there for dinner, like there are all these questions that run through your head. Right, right, I, I remember sitting down for dinner, does the hat stay on or does the hat go off? Like, what are the rules in this house? Do we pray before our meal, do we not? Are we, is it going to be one of those prayers where everybody just magically knows what they're supposed to say at the same time? Or does somebody lead to prayer? Or do we just dig into our food? Like what, like, what happens in this family? See, when it comes to being a guest in the family of God, when it comes to being a guest in the church, it's often like being an in-law at the family party that you don't really know how it works. And so as those who are a part of the family, how might we help guide them and lead them as they are part of our midst? Not getting rid of the family traditions, but helping leading people as they become a part of the family. And then the amazing thing that happens in, in our families is that there are not just the parties, but there are the moments when it's not a party. See, because the parties are stressful to plan for, but they're good. But you know what's even better than that? When you have the kind of relationship where somebody can just drop by. Where it's okay that the toys are out. 
where it's okay that dinner isn't prepared, where they can just show up because they're family. The kind of relationship where you can go into their fridge and just grab a drink. You don't have to ask. You don't need somebody to, to serve you, but you can just be there. Where things don't have to all be polished and clean because it's family. You can let your guard down. That's what we want as the church. See, as we prepare for guests, the goal is not just more guests in the seats. The goal is that we help guests become family. Because as we help guests become family, what they will find is a group of people that they can do life with. That they can be honest about the mess of their life. The hurt, the struggles, the sin, the suffering. That they can, that they can show all of that. And that we can love them in the midst of that. Or that they can let their guard down. Because it's in that honesty that they can experience the love of Jesus right where they are. May we become that kind of church. A church that helps guests become family. That, that guests will move deeper and deeper into belonging. That they will have a, gr a small group of friends who know about their struggles. That they will have peers and mentors that can look them in the eye. That know their sin and can say back to them in the midst of that sin that Jesus forgives every sin. That when things, fall apart, when things fall apart, they have somebody to call and say, I don't know what to do. That they have a family. That is God's family that is saying, we will come over right now because we're going to be there for you. May you and I become the kind of people that love like Jesus loved. May we cross the barriers to help people become a part of this family of God. May we extend invitations to those who are not a part of it. May we be prepared when they begin to experience the family. And may we help them become family. Let me close in prayer and we will continue with the song. Jesus, we thank you so much for your incredible love for us. That while we are still sinners, that you gave your life for us. That you cross social, cultural, sin barriers in order to love us, in order to offer yourself to us. We thank you for that love, that grace, that mercy and peace that only you can give to us. And so as we are reminded of the, that love and those promises, we also ask that your Holy Spirit send us out with power, with the power to love our neighbors like you have loved us, to cross their barriers that stand between them and you, so that we might invite them, so that we might welcome them, so that we might give to them your gifts. Jesus, help us to be that kind of church, to be a family that reaches out to those outside the family so that they might become family. In your name we pray. Amen.